Well, I'd like to enter into this particular topic of, of the love of, um, of God by kind of sharing with you a little bit of my own journey. For me, as I, as I look back over my Christian journey, um, it almost seems like my journey is a series of awakenings. At least that's one way of, of looking at it. Um, that the first awakening that happens in the soul is when we come to that awareness, that inner awareness and trust that, that the whole Jesus thing is real, that, that he actually was born, that this isn't a fiction of our self-made faith, but this is a, it's real, that he was born, he did live, and he died in my place to take away all my sin and then rose to give me life beyond death. I mean, that's, that's the first awakening. It's the realization that it's true and the willingness to trust in it. But at least for me, as life has gone on, there have been these periods and seasons which God um, awakens me to to newer realities. It might be a new truth. It might be um, a new experience of an old truth um, or some new facet of God's massive and incomprehensible attributes that just grips and changes my life. And it oftentimes has the effect of feeling like what I experienced before that new awakening um, wasn't really Christianity but that has kind of been my journey, and I know others have experienced that as well. There's this deepening, and there's these awakenings to the truth of uh, different truths as to how God works and in different levels of experiencing it. And um, in recent times, one of the things that God has just uh, given me a greater awakening about is the centrality and the intensity of his love for me um, and his love for his people. Um, in one sense, I can say that I understood it logically since the uh, first time I heard Sunday school lessons, um, although I don't remember a lot of those lessons, I wasn't in a lot of my classes because I got kicked out. But I did remember the, the logic of, of verses like 1 John 4.19, which says that we love because he first loved us. So at some rational level, I understood that we love God and love other people only because he first loved us. And on his love for us, then we were able to love him and and love others in return. But, but that, there's so much packed in that simple statement. We love because he first loved us. In fact, it is so massive that you can't even get your head around that simple phrase. We love because he first loved us. And what does it mean that he first loved us? When was it that he first loved us? Where does that first take place? Did it take place at the beginning of creation? Is that when he said, that's when I'll love Dan Deckard? Uh, was it when I was born and God looked down and said, man, that is an ugly baby who needs my love? And I was an ugly baby. My father was ashamed to show my picture in the hospital because I was ugly. I needed God's love at that time. Was it my birth? Was it when I finally came to my senses and realized that the Jesus thing is real and I professed belief? Is that when God said, now I'll love you? And those are, those are questions that emerge or arise out of 1 John 4.19. Recently, I've been kind of plugging away at Psalm 103 and just really thinking about what it, what it means and, and, and repeated in that psalm. There's this, there are these restraints on the steadfast love of God that have kind of taken off the blinders in a new way to new levels of God's love. That the psalmist, who happens to be King David, he, he measures God's love in terms of space and time in that psalm. And he's aspired to write in his poetry that when it comes to God's steadfast love, that it is as far as the heavens are above the earth. That's what he says. He says that the steadfast, or as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. 
by the way, the distance between, I mean, he's looking for, for human means of measurement. And the best and biggest thing he can think of is, is the distance between heaven and earth, the domain where God enthrones himself and the domain of men, which, by the way, is an infinite distance, which means for him the steadfast love of God in terms of measure is beyond calculation. That's the best he can come up with, and I think that's probably just scratching the divine surface of, of love. That's how much he loves. But then in a couple of verses later, he measures love by time. And this gets to the first loved us. We are following. This is my journey. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord, I love the way he translated steadfast, steadfast love of the Lord is from, here's time, everlasting to everlasting. Wow. Contemplation, everlasting to everlasting. Everlasting is like, like looking through divine binoculars. Back before the first clock ticked, the first second of the first minute of the first hour, back into the abyss of, of God's eternal being, and seeing that there is your name. Before time began to flow, you were a beloved thought in the mind of God. He knew your name. He knew the name of all those who have and will believe in him. And he determined from eternity past to love you, which means he first loved you before there was ever time. Eternity. That, that, now that boggles and blows my mind. Completely, That the measure is the distance between heaven and earth. And in terms of time, it extends all the way back till we can never see into the eternity of God's mystery. And then to everlasting. In other words, it will go on forever and ever into the future, into eternity future. There was never a time that God did not love his people. That's pretty mind-boggling. Which is why nothing can separate God's people from his love. Which is why his love never fails. I'll tell you, you get that sink into your heart, not just your mind. And it is the most satisfying, the most comforting, the most transforming thing in all of life. And that, of course, comes into full view in the birth, the life, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. God's love is a never-ending, always enduring, steadfast, never-failing love. And that brings us to these verses in 1 Corinthians 13. Because God is calling his people, Christians who have the Spirit of God living within them, to love with the same kind of love that he loved us. Now, granted, we are not from everlasting to everlasting. There was a time when we were not. But he does call us to exercise with each other the different relationships he brings our way. He calls us to emulate and reflect his unbreakable love to others. And that's what we, come, we see here in, in these final um, descriptions of what Christian love really is like, a love that the world does not often see. So let me read this. And actually, I'm going to back up again to verse 4 um, to give the whole list. And love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And here are the new phrases. It always protects, 
always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the kind of climactic section of the list. You notice how many times he says, always. In other words, it's without exception that love, without exception, protects. Love without exception trusts. Love without exception hopes. Love without exception perseveres. Love, and here's the reverse of always, which is never, always never. Love never, without exception, fails. I'll notice in these five things that are there in verse 7, in the first part of verse 8, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails, that there are three things that are repeated. There's one thing that's repeated in three different forms. The first part, it always protects, which in my estimation it's disappointing that my translation translates it that way because I, I read over 15 other translations and no one interprets it or translates it that way. It has the idea of bearing up. That's why the King James says, love bears or beareth all things. In other words, it puts up with everything. It's like uh, my freshman, sophomore year, I had this college roommate who liked to get up in the morning and crush his soda cans when everybody else was asleep. Like, dude, do you think maybe you could wait till noon or do it at 6 o'clock at night? No, 7 o'clock every morning, get up and crush your cans. All saying, love bears up in that, that kind of stuff. One commentator said that there is nothing, he translates this way, there is nothing that love cannot face. But then he goes on to reiterate the same idea that it bears up. It's willing to deal with stuff, put up with stuff, adversity, irritations, and so forth, um, by saying that it always perseveres, the same idea. In other words, it never gives out. It never runs dry. It always keeps going, never lets go. And then he says it again, beginning of verse 8. Love never fails. It never falters. It never stumbles. I mean, by the sheer repetition and redundancy of saying that it bears always and it perseveres always and it never fails. He's just going to show how much of a hallmark for Christian love endurance is. It's one of those distinctive qualities that sets it apart from, from other types of and other definitions of love is that it hangs in there three different times, three different ways, trying to get a truth across to us. But there is a problem. It's the problem of our human experience. Love fails all around us. We see that right here. There are some, many here, who have seen it fail. Seen marriages which were once mutually loving and committed and humble, now turning into bitter battle and completely opposite. That there are Sons who don't talk to fathers and fathers' sons. And friends who were once close, who have fallen out, who call themselves Christians. So we see it all around us. Like, so what is he talking about? How can Paul in any way, shape, or form, in light of human experience, say that love never fails, or that it always perseveres, or that it bears up under all things? Was he smoking weed when he wrote this? Was he sticking his head in the sand? Was he ignorant of human experience? Failed marriages? Church splits? Was he speaking in poetic hyperbole that's going beyond what is real to make a point? Or is he speaking of a love that is so radical 
that it is indeed possible by the Spirit, but rarely seen. I'd venture to say that that is exactly what he has in mind, that there is a love. There is a love, though rarely seen, in our self-centered, self-absorbed, pleasure-seeking culture where I am number one. That can, though rarely, endure all things and hang with it. Run to the end that doesn't run dry. This just happens to be rare, and I believe these words are a call to each of us. It's a call to look to God and exercise a kind of love that will not let people go. It will run the course. It will not give out. Just as God's love doesn't give out on us, that we don't give out on on others. It's the same kind of tenacious love that we see in the life of Jesus, that though he was reviled and mocked, rejected at almost every level, and though he was lacerated on his body and bruised in his muscle and crucified on the tree and took upon himself the storm of God's wrath, love never failed. And that's precisely one of the marks of true, devoted, spirit-filled Christianity is that love runs the distance. In other words, there is a love, and it is possible by the Spirit of God that divorce cannot break. Even if the, the papers must be signed, his love, of course, takes two. One can be committed to an unrelenting, tenacious, enduring love, and if the other is not, there is very little one can do in the end but pray. That one can still love beyond that divorce, the ex-husband or the ex-wife. That there is a love that hangs strong, even with your son or your daughter now grown, has rejected the faith, rejected you, and doesn't want to have anything to do, to do with you. There still is a love that can persevere and still go the distance. The question is, how? How does love persevere? How does it never fail? I mean, that is the nagging question in my mind. And that brings us to what I think are probably, in my estimation, two of the most important qualities of love and two of the most important words in this entire list. Namely, trust and hope. You notice, right in, embedded right in the middle of that it always protects, which, as I said, should be translated bears up or bears all things. Right but in between that and then the concluding always perseveres and never fails are these two amazing words that I think make it possible for love to endure and persevere anything. Namely, a love that trusts always and a love that hopes always. That where there is trust that is alive... That, that love will, will endure. Now, what I believe Paul means when he talks about the fact that love trusts always is he's not talking about that my love trusts in men or in people or in their goodwill. I don't think Paul would ever tell us to trust in people. In fact, the Bible says the opposite. Cursed is the man that trusts in human flesh. Trust is always placed in the one who is immovable and unchangeable and all-powerful and loving, namely God himself. So what I believe he's saying when he says love always trusts, which enables us to persevere, is that it trusts God always for the person we're called to love. That 
whether that person is a wife, a husband, a child, an ex-wife, ex-husband, or a mother-in-law. Say that with emphasis. That love always trusts God and His gracious hand with that person, and it's that trust in Him for them that enables love to continue to survive. Now, that doesn't mean that love remains passive. As if I can just allow my four-year-old son to wander towards a street with really quick, deranged Camaro drivers um, and say, well, I trust God for his safety. The kind of trust always doesn't negate the fact that we are called to actively love people in different ways in different times in different ways. So that love sometimes has to discipline. Sometimes, love sometimes has to rebuke and correct and confront. That's, those are different faces of love. On the positive side, love sometimes needs to encourage. It needs to care for and provide and touch and pray for. I mean, those are different ways that we're called to actively love people. But here's the thing. We do all of those things in trust. We do all of those things recognizing that a rebuke, a confrontation, discipline, an encouragement, a care, a provision, in the end, do not of them, in and of themselves change somebody. Rather, we trust God to do the changing. It's precisely when we exercise those kinds of things, thinking that somehow we can coerce, force, or control change, that love breaks down. We never exercise love in a controlling way, but in a trusting way. Recognizing that God is going to do in His time, in His own way, what He wants to do with our expression of love. That is freeing in a way that allows you to continue to love. And right now, okay, I recognize that there are people who are giving out on love in this congregation. Now, you, some of you are going to listen to this and think, well, that was a neat little message, go out, and then you're not going to love somebody. Now, I could be highly frustrated by that as a pastor and say, man, how come you didn't get the point? I could come over to your house and play tapes in your room at night that says, love your wife, love your husband, and you're still not going to get it, and that could frustrate me more. But you know how freeing it is to know that, you know what? God, you take the word and you do with it what you're going to do because the human soul is your domain, not mine. And so I can love people freely and leave the doing and the changing and the conforming to the image of Jesus to him. That brings a level of freedom and, and therefore perseverance to love. I mean, you have a son or a daughter who's a teenager that are just driving you nuts and you think, man, I am about to kick them out of the house. And maybe sometimes love does have to do that. But you, you, you kind of want to wash your hands. If you realize, I, I really, my son or daughter, the domain of their soul is God's. And I'll do what I can, what I'm called to do, and I'll be faithful as I can as a father or mother, but recognize that he's going to do his own thing. God is going to do his own thing in his own time, in his own way. And I can trust the soul of my teenager to the Lord. That frees you to keep loving them in the way that they're needed. You're not trying to control coerce or force. That's why trust is so important. Or a wife who wishes that her husband was the spiritual leader of the family. And nags and preaches, you're not the leader of the family. You're not helping anything. 
Why don't you trust that in God's time, in God's way, God will do his thing and continue to love him in the way you're called to love him? In that way, your love will persevere, and you'll find the freedom for it to persevere. That's why I think trust is so important to preserving love. Is I have to trust you, you have to trust me, you have to trust your spouse, your kid, to the Lord, because the soul is his domain, to do what he's going to do in his time in his own way and continue to love. Is there any other explanation as to why Paul could continue to love this messed up, backwards, dysfunctional church? I mean, I know not a lot of, some of you perhaps haven't read the whole thing through, but this church is messed up. I mean, people are fighting. There are cliques. Um, People are being selfish and proud. They're taking advantage of each other. There is a, a gross tolerance of gross sin in the body. There's some bad leadership that's saying Paul's not an apostle, and they have some seriously messed up theology. They don't think the resurrection is something future. Most of you would defect from a church like this. You would flee. You'd say, run away, unclean. You'd want to put a skull and crossbones over the church doors saying, do not enter, because it's a messed up church. But somehow, and by the way, pastors would resign from churches like this and have resigned for churches like this. They're so messed up. So why does Paul's love endure? Well, I think he knows something that we know but often fail to trust. And that is he knows, as he speaks elsewhere, he says, I'm convinced and persuaded that what the Lord began, he's going to complete. He's perfectly and intensely self-aware that he is just a planter. Apollos is just a waterer. But the control and the growth... All comes from the Lord. So he does his job and loves them by giving them letters like this, being faithful, trusting that God's going to continue and complete the work. If you have that sense of conviction that God is going to do his work in your wife or your husband or your child or your friend or your former pastor, then love will endure. So how is it that love never fail? Always persevere and always bear up. Well, it trusts. It's one way, but it also, and the second thing is, hopes. That's that other part, is it always hopes. And hope is, as I think of it, is just the optimistic side of faith. And they need each other. Where there is no hope, there is no faith, and where there is no faith, there is no hope. But it's the, it's the, it's the, Realization that, you know what, God is better, more gracious, more merciful, and more compassionate than we'll ever know. And so as long as there is life in the lungs of another person, there is still hope for them. It always hopes. Always hopes. And the best example I can think of in the Scripture is, is of, of hoping love is the prodigal son. Most of you know this. Even people who don't go to church know the story of the prodigal son. I won't belabor it. But uh, it's basically Jesus tells a story of a, of a son, a younger son who comes up to his father and does the, um, the rude, ungracious, and unthinkable thing by asking for his inheritance while his father's still alive. Can you imagine your son coming up to you and saying, Hey, Dad, I want my inheritance. I know you're still alive. You're not dead yet. But I basically wish you were so that I could have my stuff and go. That's the prodigal son. He comes up to his dad, I want my inheritance early before you die. And his father, gracious, says, okay. 
gives him his portion, and he runs off, and the text says that he committed himself or pursued wild living, probably a life of wine and women and feeling good, whatever it is. And as you know, the story, hard times hit, his wealth is completely depleted, the only job he can find is feeding pigs and finds himself eating the same stuff. And it's there that the text says in the story that he came to his senses and remembered his father. And so he got up and he returned to the only place where he ever experienced true love. Meanwhile, the story tells us that his father saw him from a great distance coming. Now that gives me the impression, we don't know how many days or months or years the son was gone, chose a lifestyle completely opposite of his father. We don't know how long, but the text gives the impression that that the father was looking often, often to the distance, as if he was scouring the horizon looking for someone he longed to have back. That is the son who left. And so sometime, at some point, perhaps he went every day and looked and wished and perhaps prayed. I don't think that's a stretch of the text, to think that he prayed, Lord, bring my son home, bring my son home, bring my son home. He looks down the dirt road and he sees perhaps it's a, it's a walk that he recognizes and it gets closer a figure. And it says that he broke with propriety. He ran and he embraced him and he kissed him, then lavishes on his son gifts he does not deserve. It is a powerful, to me, picture of a father who never lost love because he never lost hope. He never lost hope that his son may be coming home, that God could bring him home. It's a picture of hope that preserves love because there's still a belief that God is powerful while there's still breath in a person. um, He is merciful and gracious and compassionate. There's always hope. You know, there's a family that I grew up with in my hometown and and the mother and father of this particular family I still call aunt and uncle. Um, They're my mom and dad's best friends. And and I think they're approaching their 70s now and they've had three children um, very loving, instrumental in my life. But something has happened to them over the course of the last almost three, three decades um, that has grieved them. Two of their sons, oldest and the next second born, are doing well with the Lord. But their only daughter, the youngest, and she's a couple years older than me, I went to school with her, the youngest daughter in her late teens, early 20s, decided that she wanted to, one, reject the faith, which is hard. But then she rejected her parents to the point where she doesn't want to have anything to do with them, and has adopted a contrary alternate lifestyle. Namely, she's become a lesbian for the last two and a half centuries. And I know that word is probably not PC, but the moment we become PC here, we're in big trouble. Bottom line is that she has adopted for the last two and a half decades a very sinful lifestyle that will end in tragedy if it doesn't change. But knowing their character, and I've never asked them this specifically, but knowing their character, I still believe they scour the horizon praying and hoping for her return. Because as long as there is life, and as long as God exists, and as he is merciful and gracious and compassionate, and you still believe he can do the impossible, there's still hope. That's why hope is so important to enduring, persevering love. You still know God's powerful. I still know you're gracious. And I know you got their life under your control. Even when all you can do is stand at a distance in your love and pray, love still perseveres 
even when you stand on one side of a huge gap or gulf called divorce, love can still pray and persevere. So I hope is so important for the perseverance of love. There's still hope. You hope in God for that other person. I'm not hoping in people, but I'm hoping and I'm banking on the mercy, compassion of God that is new every morning and who has life under control. All that to say, you, you know, we will recover a greater sense of the permanency of love, its enduring quality, the fact that it never fails in marriage, family, and, and church. When we're able to love in the freedom of trust, trusting God, and we're able to love in hope, hoping in God for that other person. Now, the reason I think that that's important, there's a lot of reasons why that's important, but, you know, we're living in a time right now, and this, maybe it's this year, maybe it's a couple-year period, I don't know, where relationships in marriages and in families and friendships in the church are being assaulted like I've never seen before. Some of them are enduring. Others are dissolving. I believe what the Lord is, is saying to us today, to me, to you, Don't let love fail. Don't let go. Keep running. Don't give up. But do so in trust and in hope. As long as God is there and you trust in Him, there is always, like I said, still hope. I mean, God Himself says, listen, I take care of what? The over, however many trillions of sparrows, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from my commission, uh, permission. And my care extends down to the hairs on the head of over six billion people. Don't you think I can handle the soul of a person made in my image? And he's saying, trust me with that person and continue to love. Continue to be kind. Continue to be patient. Continue to resist being self-seeking and proud and arrogant. Continue to forgive But do those things and persevere, trusting me and hoping in me. Is there a name that comes to mind? Name of a former pastor? An old friend who's fallen out with a long time ago. That love has failed. Perhaps the Lord is saying, you know what? Time to re-engage. Time to pick up the phone and call or write a Christmas card and be kind. In trust and in hope. This is a call, my friends, um, to a love that doesn't let go. Because that's one of the distinctive qualities of Christian love. You want people to know that you're a Christian. You want to reach out to people and you want to let your light shine before men. And stick with it. And show them a kind of love that doesn't exist around the world. A love says, I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to be wise about it, but I'm going to love you no matter what. Perhaps this Christmas season is is the time to uh, make amends of those fallen friendships. And if you're frustrated with somebody, perhaps it's time to remember, you know what, I can trust God with that person, just keep loving. I can hope in God for that person, I can just keep loving them. I don't know what the Lord's saying to you in particular in your particular situation. But he's speaking to you. And how are you going to deal with 
with his truth. That love bears all things. Love always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Lord, I pray that you grant us the power and the strength to live this radical description of what true love looks like. A love that has been uh, modeled for us by Jesus as he took everything for the sake of love for his people and for his Father. And I pray that you would just allow us to to emulate that, live that, when we find ourselves weak and at the end of our rope wanting to throw in the towel, I pray that we will look to you as our source of strength, but also the one who controls and manages the world in which we live, and we would release it to you. So we hope in you, and we trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The right thing. And you can release it because you know he'll take care of it. I mean, that's, that, that was what Jesus modeled for us. No one else in human history suffered as much emotional, spiritual, or physical abuse as he did. And yet somehow, and he was fully God, yes, but also fully human with all of the feelings that we have, he was able to say to those people who had injured him emotionally, physically, and spiritually, Father, forgive them. Don't hold it to their account. How is he able to do that? How can Jesus do that if he truly is human? First Peter gives us the answer. Chapter 2, verse 23. That Jesus absorbed these things by entrusting himself to the one he knew judges justly. In other words, he trusted the justice of God. He will take care of it. So if, by the power of grace and spirit, you can manage by faith to say, Lord, I trust you with the justice of the situation, whether it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it happened yesterday. You got it covered. Then you will be able to release it. You may have to do that every day to begin with. It may have to be every hour to say, I surrender it to your justice. I surrender it to your justice. The only other option is that you take it to yourself and poison your life. And you're not, you cannot manage and control that kind of anger long term. It will destroy you. God can take care of it. So, so here, let me, let me just be personal. If you're one of those people that say, yeah, I have something in my past I just haven't let go, let me say what I think the Lord would want me to say to you. You want me to say to you, Trust me with it. I've got it covered. Trust me with it. Surrender it to me. I'm bigger than you know. You can trust me with it. Saying to you, come out of the prison and into the light. For whatever reason you're holding on to it, because that anger gives you a sense of meaning, makes you feel protected, or it gives you some small semblance of control. The Lord's saying, you know what? Trust me with it. Trust me with justice. And then the flip side of that is to remember mercy. One of the things that deflates anger quicker than anything in my life is to remember how merciful God is and was to me. The fact that my debt against him and my personal injury against his majesty is infinite and eternal. And yet he, he relinquished the death or my debt through the blood of his own son. So that mercy runs so deep 
And when my heart begins to sense just how deep it runs for me in my own personal stuff, recognizing that without God and without mercy in my life, I'm just kind of a steaming pile of bubbling sin goo. That's what I am. That's all I am. And to recognize and meditate on on scriptures like Psalm 103, where the psalmist says, do not forget all your benefits. Do not let my soul forget all your benefits that you, Lord, have forgiven all of my sins, that you have healed all of my diseases, that you have redeemed my life from the pit, and you have crowned me with steadfast love and mercy, and you have satisfied me with goodness. When mercy overflows and you remember mercy, then it's far easier to humbly let go of the arrogant judge in my mind and to see anger flee. So again, I just, I imagine my names come to mind. People, you might even see this Christmas. And the Lord's just saying to you, this Christmas in which we celebrate peace and love and joy, release it to me and my justice. And remember, remember the depth of my mercy in your life. Then you'll find, I think, the motivation to surrender whatever it is to the Lord. Will you do that this morning? I'm going to pray for you. Father, just do your work. I just pray that the truth would not be... um, Oh, return void. I pray that people wouldn't forget it as soon as they walk out of this, these doors, but do some serious wrestling with you. And, and if they have to fight the fight of forgiveness each day, each hour to surrender it to you, who is perfectly just and good and also merciful, then I pray you give them the strength to do that. And perhaps this Christmas they will be able to live um, at a new level of peace that they haven't yet experienced. So just do your work, Lord God, and we just rejoice for those who have Decided to follow you and trust you and trust your justice and trust your mercy and follow you in, in obedience and being baptized. And we just offer it up now in Jesus' name. Amen.